most of my growth occurred as a result of having some rules that I had to grow into. It's oftentimes a misunderstanding of how biblical rules work. A lot of people believe, well, you read it in a book and then you just follow the rules. Like I remember some of my friends that weren't religious, like, well, life is easy for you because you know what to do. And I was like, well, just because I, <laughs> just because I know what to do, doesn't make it easy. Oftentimes, it makes it harder. You you gotta you gotta be that person, and that's what, and that's a big part of my marriage success. I, my wife and I talk about it all the time. Like we just say to each other, like, if we weren't more connected to God and had no framework, who knows what would have happened? And I see it in my practice all the time. I see 30, 40, 50 year olds who. I have to teach them concepts that I learned when I was 22 years old, just about basic marriage skills that is so clear to traditional people that are hidden from just regular secular Westerners. How do young men like us optimize our lives in a way that lets us achieve success and meaning? Come with me as I interview top performers and delve into key areas of life. Habits, finance, psychology, health, relationships, work, creativity, and business. I boil the ocean of men's advice into usable wisdom in this podcast to give you the answers. My name is Blake Bottrell, and this is The Distilled Podcast. My guest today has been happily arguing with his wife for over 30 years. His experiment as a software developer turned marriage therapist might in truly be an N of one. If you'd ever wondered what parking your car, pushing someone out a window, and climbing Mount Kilimanjaro had to do with a successful marriage, I encourage you to stick around because you might just find out. David Feldman, welcome to the show. Nice to be here, Blake. Real pleasure. <laughs> Very excited to chat with you today. <laughs> so I wanted to sort of start off with an interesting thing that I pulled from a blog post of yours that um, is from research from Julie and John Gottman. And you had written that they had an interesting study that framed um, couples who rarely, if ever, discuss their issues sort of had the same level of marital happiness as ones that talk through their problems and differences. And that sort of runs counterintuitive to a lot of the messaging that we're taught as communication is a pillar of of good relationships and good marriages. How do we sort of square that circle? Oh, that is just such a great topic, really. I mean, it, you've really started off with a bang and, and we could have such an interesting conversation about the role of communication in relationships. I believe as a marriage therapist that this new that this notion that we need to have open dialogue and talk about our, our relationship uh, has, is oftentimes can be very detrimental to one's marriage and one's relationship. <clears throat> Most of the time when people have, quote unquote, the talk, or they're talking about their relationship, most of the time it goes south. Uh, somebody says something that's hurtful, somebody overshares uh, information that the other person perhaps didn't fully realize and that's hurtful. Uh, somebody doesn't say something when they should. <laughs> uh, that those are, And that's all if both of you are in the right headset and the right mind frame for an actual conversation. Imagine what happens when somebody's feeling attacked or defensive or they're feeling uh, just sad about things or uh, even planning on you know exiting the relationship. So 
there's so many opportunities for conversations about the relationship to go south. To me, it's almost a miracle when <laughs> when a couple can talk about something and they walk away feeling closer than they did before. So that's one of my golden rules, really. With with when people start when people join my recreating intimacy program, that's the first rule that right from the get go, we're gonna we're gonna automatically stop talking about our relationship. And so I think this jives with what Gottman was getting at, you know, the results of his of the study, which at the time that I read it, I also felt blown away. You know, I mean, in the way in the way it was presented, I have to find it again. But the way it was presented was so matter of factly, you know, like it's like, you know, pillar number one was people who talked about everything and had a great communication. Pillar number two was actually people who fought like cats and dogs, but had great makeup. And pillar number three was couples that just chose not to discuss it. You know, they they nip at each other, they bite each other, they they you know, but then they lick their wounds in private, and then they came back together. So I thought that was very insightful. Was that 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 marital happiness was equal, but maybe lower than people who talked about, or was it even across the board? Yeah, it was. It was essentially even across the board. There was. He defines three successful fighting styles and uh, all three of these, you know, the worst is when people, you know, fight and then they carry a grudge or they, they fight and one person dominates over the other. Or, of course, the famous John Gottman study about the four uh, horsemen of the relationship apocalypse, you know. So there's all different ways to ruin a, <laughs> a conversation, that's for sure. But the three that the three that the happiest couples fell into were these three categories I, I i don't do you do you want to comment on that i i mean i it's just a mind-blowing observation that i've never come to before it's uh the first thing that came to my head was what i verbalized there is it's hard for me to understand given that the prevailing theory is to just over communicate as much as possible but it's certainly an interesting have you been have you ever been in a scenario where you've tried to talk to it could be anybody it could be a girlfriend a parent a wife you know i i, I don't know if you're married um but oh, oh cool cool so maybe you've been in a situation where you've tried to have a conversation with your wife and it has gone south i mean has that ever happened uh thankfully we don't tend to fight a lot uh okay. like to uh um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, truthfully, don't know that we've ever really had a, a large disagreement. The largest ones tend to sort of work themselves out and maybe gets into some of the other stuff that you talk about of having the proper mindset going into things before having those conversations and making sure that you're prepped for having those conversations versus just doing things in the heat of the moment. So. Yeah, yeah. And, and I do want to make a caveat. I don't want to have one caveat here. I, I strongly am an advocate if, if to express yourself if you feel like there's something that's bothering you about the way your partner's treating you or something that hurts you about the way you're being treated. That I do encourage strongly to speak up about. So I don't advocate, you know, I, I'm, not a, I, I'm not a believer in just you know, take a lick in and just go to the corner and forget about it. If there's something that's happening in the relationship or something that you're feeling or something your partner did, you definitely should speak up, but not about the relationship. So to be specific, you know, 
I don't know if you love me. I don't know if we're compatible. I don't know if this is really working out. Uh, I think you're too judgmental. Um, I think that we have a problem with, uh, you know, communicating. I think that you don't understand me. All these types of types of com comments are not helpful. You have this sort of uh, relationship-oriented conversation styling that you lead people through as part of this sort of communication for when people feel hurt. Can you just run through that quickly? Sure, sure. So I spent years trying to figure out and piece together a practical and yet effective way of expressing how you're feeling. See, one of the most important concepts to understand in, is that every, type, every scenario that we're in, and, and once you understand this concept, you'll see it everywhere, Every scenario that we're in, we have different modes of communication. So if I'm on a soccer team with some friends and I'm speaking to other soccer players, I will speak to them in a certain way. I will not take that same type of communication and bring it into my office with me, right? Okay. I will not speak to my dad like I speak to my son. Like, for instance, I would never say to my dad as he was leaving the house, hey, can you just make sure to take the garbage out on your way out the door? Right? It's just not going to happen. It, it, it's so much not going to happen that I won't even, it doesn't even come into my consciousness to say such a thing. Right? So human beings, we're really, really good at separating the way we speak based on our context and where we are and who we're speaking to. We're excellent at it. For most of us, this completely falls apart when we're speaking to our partner, right? It just goes out the window, right? Anything's game. If you want to be critical, you can be critical. If you want to raise your voice, you can raise your voice. If you want to try to argue about the way you think about things and da 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 So one of my goals with my communication methodology is to help people understand that when you're speaking within the confines of a marriage and you're trying to communicate to your spouse... The only thing that really matters is how you feel. That's it. Okay. Whether you think your spouse acted like right or wrong or whether it's good or bad or whether, you know, other people do it or don't do it. These are all things that cause your partner to shut down or get defensive and throw it back in your face. Right. So, for instance, you know. I don't see why you're always coming so late. I mean, who does that? Who always shows up late, you know, when they come home from work? You know what I mean? Okay, so here's an example of somebody trying to, you know, or, um, <clears throat> you know, in my experience, only smart people vote Democrat or vote Republican, right? So once you start adding these types of um, uh methods and techniques into your speech, you're alienating your spouse. So instead, you always want to focus on the way you feel about something. So that's because we live, our relationship lives, in my, in my opinion, in what's called a no judgment zone. I don't want to ever be in a position where I'm judging your behavior. I'm already married to you. If I think you're a creep and an idiot and a loser and a hooligan, Probably shouldn't have married. <laughs> Probably shouldn't have married you in the first place. So once we're married, we both have good feelings and trust that each other's be behavior is not something that we're going to comment on. However, if a behavior is hurtful, meaning it affects me negatively, hurts me, I want to know. 
So that's the foundational principle. I'm only interested in conveying to you how I feel about something. Okay, and then from there, and one of the reasons I came on to that is because I literally, I literally tried everything else. <laughs> I tried everything else. I tried convincing. I tried arguing. I tried getting, you know, big in energy, small in energy. Nothing seems to work when it comes to interpersonal, uh, specifically in marriage types of communication. So once we're at that place where we're really focused on feelings, so then the question is, how do I get my feelings across? Okay, so it's really not complicated in its method, but it is difficult to change our behavior in order to do it. So I basically, there's four steps to the process. The first one is a goodwill statement. The second one is the, the expression of your lived experience. The third one is your emotional reaction. And the fourth one is a behavioral change request, if that's what you want. That all sounds very scientific. To make it extremely easy, hey, you're great. When this happened, I felt this way. Let's change. That's all it is. So if you can just get that, hey, you're great. So immediately defenses go down. I'm not here to criticize you. I'm not here to condemn you. I'm not here to say you did something wrong. I'm not here to say you're a bad person. Hey, you're great. I love you, right? When this happened, when you came late for dinner, I felt rejected and I felt disrespected. I'm wondering if we can both, so it's the fourth one is let's change. I'm wondering if we can both make more of an effort to be more on time. Right? And you can literally do that for anything. You, know, you can do it about sex. You can do it about coming in time. You can do it about the way you dress. You can do it about the way somebody communicates to you. You can use it in any situation that you're in. And the better you get at this, the more direct and the more direct your partner is going to hear what's important to them, which is how is my behavior affecting the person who I love? That's really what they want to know. They don't want to hear your opinions of whether you think that your behavior is good or bad, right or wrong. <laughs> if you've never seen anybody else do it, <laughs> what do you think about what I'm saying? Yeah, it's uh, just drives the point home of in the context of a marriage setting or, or a long-term relationship setting, you already have the preconceived notion that your partner has your best interests at heart. So there's often not the need to uh, blame or remind or uh, anything of that nature that would cause them to feel that whatever they're doing is their fault because the method that they're working through or the the situation that they put themselves in is not one that they necessarily know is causing you some sort of undue harm, right? Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, if they, if they were, again, you probably wouldn't want to be married to somebody who's unpurposely doing something to harm you. And again, coming back to making sure that we're having these conversations in the right mindset, hearkening back to what I mentioned in the intro, you have this analogy of you would never ask someone what's wrong with the relationship after pushing them out the window. So you, <laughs> you need to, of course, as they're falling through the air, all of the answers are going to sound crazy. 
so just really making sure when you're having these discussions, it's not right after you're taking an hour, two hours, how much wind down time you need to collect your own feelings, thoughts about the, the conversation and then have it uh, in uh, as polite and neutral a way as possible. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, and that's a great, you know, little analogy that I think is so befitting because so much of a relationship discord, I work with so many couples where it's like he said this or she said that and it's really hurtful, you know, and a big reason why it's like that is because, like I said earlier, we're not um, limiting our speech with our partner, which is really, really important if you want to have a happy marriage. You don't have to do it, but <laughs> odds are if you don't, <laughs> your marriage isn't going to be very happy. At some point, you may get away with it. You're young, you know, so <laughs> it could be that you've only been married for I don't know how many years. How long have you been married for? Just uh coming up on four months i think just since june <laughs> okay so congratulations Thank congratulations you. yeah you sort of had a large age gap between dating your wife the first time and dating your wife the second time and my parents had the same thing i you talk about it uh in the context of at first we had this secular dating experience and then we had this more traditional courtship experience um, after going through, um, not conversion per se, but more uh, coming to the church um, and uh, the Jewish faith. Um, how much of that do you chalk up to that secular versus religious dating experience versus just having a maturity gap in when you dated the first time and dated the second time? Great question. You're good today. Um, I wish, I wish I could say, I have to be honest with you. I wish I could say that it was a maturity gap. That would be a great feeling on my part and a big, um, a big vote of confidence for our society in general. Uh, unfortunately, I can, I have to admit that I haven't, I didn't see much difference in my secular perspective then versus when I did eventually marry my beloved. If it wasn't for my connection with God and my devotion to my faith, I'm not sure I ever, I mean, I don't know how many years it would have taken me to grow out of that youthful immaturity. Um, that youthful kind of naivety, you know, regarding what relationships are about and how I was supposed to show up in a relationship. As a matter of fact, most of my growth occurred as a result of having some rules that I had to grow into. It's, it's, it's oftentimes a misunderstanding of how biblical rules work. A lot of people believe, well, you read it in a book, and then you just follow the rules. Like I remember some of my friends that weren't religious. They're like, well, life is easy for you because you know what to do, you know? And I was like, well, just because I <laughs> just because I know what to do doesn't make it easy. Oftentimes it makes it harder. You know, you, you gotta you gotta be that person, you know. And that's what and that's a big part of my marriage success. I, my wife and I talk about it all the time. Like we just say to each other, like if we weren't more connected to God and had no framework, who knows what would have happened, you know? And so, um, yeah, 
Yeah. And I see it in my practice all the time. I see 30, 40, 50 year olds who I have to teach them concepts that I learned when I was 22 years old, just about basic marriage skills that is so clear to traditional people, but that are hidden from just regular secular Westerners. Did you find that in your case too? Um, I'm not overly religious, was raised uh, in a Presbyterian church um, and have, I won't say followed any of the teachings necessary or not like purposely tried to ignore the teachings. I'm sure there's some inbuilt um, of that uh, inbuilt, the inbuilt nature of just being in that environment that has been successful as part of my learning of what a good relationship looks like. But I also just had two parents that loved each other and had good role models for what a relationship is supposed to look like. And I think it's sort of a double whammy in that we're getting rid of both of those at the same time right now, which is a little bit unfortunate. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, I'm really seeing, you know, I, I'm really seeing the ramifications of that when I work with younger people who, you know, haven't had the blessing of having a father at home or in some cases a mother at home. Uh, and it just sticks with them through their, their marriage. That's not to say that people can't have successful marriages. It just makes, you know, the challenges when you're working with them one-on-one -on -one and you're doing some inner work with them, it becomes clear that even to them that this is an area of struggle, you know, and for many of them, they didn't, like you mentioned, you had a role model. So it's like for many of them, they've never had, they've never seen what love looks like. They've never seen a man and woman communicate to each other, respect each other, love each other, touch each other respectfully, honoring what does it mean to honor your wife? You know, uh, what does it mean to say yes when you don't feel like it, <laughs> which happens quite a bit, you know? Duty, right? Mm -hmm. My dad's two favorite words were yes, dear. <laughs> and look, he has a great, he has a great marriage. <laughs> you talk about working one-on-one -on -one with, the individuals that you work with now, you have a bit of an unconventional method of therapy or, or counseling, whatever you want to call it. You do do marriage therapy, but you work individually with each member of the marriage on their own. Can you talk a little bit about that? And then why maybe is that not a more popular form of marriage therapy given the up to 30% unsuccess rate, I'll call it, of traditional marriage therapy? I started my, my journey as a marriage therapist by me going to marriage therapy, my wife and I going to marriage therapy ourselves. This was in my early 40s. And um, I just, I, I just had the exact complaints that everybody has. You know, um, first of all, I felt that the therapist was definitely taking my wife's side on everything. Of course, <laughs> um, I felt like I was never heard. I felt unsafe sharing how I really felt. There's a funny Will Ferrell movie. I forgot what it's called, where he blurts out something, you know, in front of, do you know what the Will Ferrell movie? Uh, that I'm, I'm not, it's not coming to mind. <laughs> uh, it's just a great scene where he blurts out something very private. And he says, oh, I thought this was the circle of trust. I thought we were allowed to say whatever we want. 
And that was happening left and right. You know, I was saying things that I shouldn't have been saying. It was a disaster, you know. And I said to myself, and I even said to the therapist, I was such a brazen person at that time because we were having difficulties and I didn't know what to do. I just said to the therapist, I, I think I can do, <laughs> I think I can do this better than you. And uh, I left the therapy and I just went, I went right to, I enrolled in school and I was like, I, I know I can do this differently. So it stemmed from the frustration of the traditional marriage room. I mean, you put a man in a room, a man, I always, I compare it to a tiger and a lion, you know, an, an angry tiger and a hungry lion, put them in the same room and just like, see what happens. <laughs> you have those YouTube videos where they, they put a bear and a lion in a cage and just, just to watch what happens. It's terrible. And uh, anybody who's in the audience or who's been in marriage therapy probably can relate. So I did not want to do that. Um, so after I graduated, although that is the predominant method in school, we practice that, you know, and even in school, there were certain couples that, that walked into the therapy room where they were saying, you know, we're here to learn. We're here to work. I really want to hear my partner's perspective. I really want to know what's going on. I really want to connect, reconnect with my partner. That'd be like one in 10. The other nine, they were literally there just to point fingers. So what happened is I just decided I'm I'm not participating in that. And now I work with couples, but we do it individually for the most part. We do have some joint sessions, but for the most part, it's individual and it's fantastic. I mean, the people can open up to me. They can tell me what's really going on. They can tell me how they really feel. They can cry if they want to cry, mostly the women. Um, men can share like man to man what's you know they speak to me like they would never speak in front of their wives to a therapist and i can speak back to them in a way that i would never speak in front of his wife <laughs> back to him the same way and it's just great and the women can talk to me all about all different types of things she can talk to me about her feelings and she can talk to me about she can talk to me about sex. She can talk to me about her parents. She can talk to me how she's her children. She shares with me about her husband. It's wonderful. And I kind of get between them. I, I ask my clients, I always say when we first start, I say, have you ever had a three-way before? So most of them, thankfully, say no. <laughs> and I say, well, we're going to have one now. And it was an emotional menage a trois. And I'm going to be moving into your relationship. And so they use me as kind of like leverage when they're feeling something and they can't get it across or they just need somebody to bounce an idea off of or they even check with me should i say this or what do you think i should do about that and it's just a very connecting experience and a very supportive experience and very safe and so that's why i did it yeah i think i've come across statistics of women using marriage therapy mostly as a confirmation of the fact that the relationship's over and they're just looking for someone to confirm to them what they're feeling. And then I think that's exasperated by, um, and I don't know how much this was communicated to you when you were in school, but I've heard other uh, marriage therapists talk about the idea that whenever you have a joint session, you almost have to uh, affirm the feelings of the wife that's in the situation because she's more likely to walk out of the session and then everything just sort of blows up from there. So therapists often tend to side with the woman, regardless of whether that's uh, inbuilt or just 
whatever it is that's just the context of how most people end up having to conduct sessions yeah yeah of course i mean that's i'm usually able to be much more direct with a man than with a woman and so that's that's another thing like you can't do that when you're in a session because the, the man picks up on that you know why are you coming down on me like a ton of bricks well because i can i would do it to her but i can't <laughs> so um but it, you know one of the things that i that I inform my clients when they work with me is I always tell them, especially in terms of taking sides, I always say, I, I don't take any sides except for one. I take one side. I'm on the side of your marriage. And I let them know that I'm not just a regular marriage therapist. I'm what I call a marriage advocate. I believe in their marriage. I think it's worth saving for the, you know, it, I, it depends on the clients, but I usually only work with clients that I think is worth saving. I think, and I'm going to be fighting for your marriage. And that's going to make you uncomfortable at times. I'm going to ask you to do things that go out of your comfort zone and that are not normal for you. But this is what it takes. And that's why I call myself on Twitter. My handle is Building Great Marriages. That's what that's all about. You always ask them to end that first session after they get a lot of the venting out with sort of five reasons why they love their spouse. And that sort of segues into the rest of all their learnings in their time with you, correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's the most, that is the biggest shift. Right out of that first session, we make the biggest shift, which is really, really nice. Um, the, the platform, the foundation of my entire, of all of our marriages, is I'm not bringing anything new to the table. The platform for a successful marriage is love and appreciation of your spouse. That's it. If you're not looking at the woman that you're, that you're waking up to and you're not, thrilled with her you're losing out right it's going to affect you the, the rest of the day whereas if you wake up next to somebody and you think you're crazy about this person and you see so many beautiful things about this person and yeah she can be difficult to get along with okay fair enough fair enough but you're looking at her value and her beauty and and her her character it's really hard to get angry and to fall out of love. And so what I do in the very first session, after I let them, you know, I give them plenty of time to cry and complain and tell me about all their problems, which is extremely important. It's a very important part of therapy. And I take notes, so I make sure that I get a list of things that we have to address through throughout the program. But at the end of it, I want them to turn that corner, you know, okay, I heard all the downsides. Let's talk about why you love your husband. You know, I always say five and it's like, <laughs> they're, they're so upset they can't come up with one. So I say, well, you know, is he nice? <laughs> well, he can be nice sometimes, you know, is he handsome? Well, you know, he's gained a little weight, but yeah, he's still got that smile is there somewhere, you know. You know, is he responsible? Yeah, he's a very responsible person, you know. Is he funny? Oh, he can really make me laugh. And then the ball just gets rolling, you know, and before you know it, we're at 20, 25 character traits or qualities about this man that she loves. And you can just feel the whole shift in her demeanor and her whole energy has shifted, you know, and uh, it's just such a breakthrough for this person because she probably hasn't thought those things. It could be a decade, you know, so it's really, really great. Our mutual friend acquaintance joel had him on the podcast it's coming out tomorrow actually as we're awesome. recording this and he says his favorite ones 
one that he likes to start with when he's talking to guys is uh, she has great taste, right? Because she picked you. <laughs> and oftentimes they just go, oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> Good. Yeah, yeah making, Joel's hysterical. So it's like I can imagine what a pleasure to work with him and be laughing every other second. You know, it takes the, neg- takes the bite out of the situation, you know. What's the best part of working with your wife? Well, um, first of all, it brings us closer together as a couple, you know, which I really appreciate. You know, some people, we don't we, we don't work together like all day or anything like that, but we share clients. So we have a lot of conversations. I get to learn more about her and the way she approaches things, and she obviously sees the way I do. What I really like about it is, you know, I have somebody who can check me. You know, women have a very unique perspective and intuition. I talk about this a little bit on Twitter that there's a sixth sense that women have. And this is talked about in the Torah and the Bible as well, that God gave women a higher dose of intuition and understanding. And it's, it's amazing if you tap into it as a man, if you kind of, when I, when I say tap into your wife's intuition as a man, meaning you make room for that in your conversations and your relationship. And you pay attention to the way she sees things. And it's oftentimes so out of the box for men who are oftentimes constrained by logic and reason. And um, I hear her talk about the couples that we work with and oftentimes in very different language than I do. And it really brings a lot of insight into the way I relate to the couple, or the way I understand the problems that they're facing, the way I deal. You know, she may share with me, well, this woman is very hurt, or this woman has a lot of childhood issues, or this woman is really feeling insecure. And I may not have picked up on some of those things, you know, um, but she does. So it's a very nice, it's a blessing that I'm able to bounce off, that we're able to bounce off from each other you know, yeah. And also people will open up differently to different people. So the woman will tell her things that she didn't tell me, you know, and that's okay. I mean, that's just part of what it means to have a conversation, but she may have felt safer to tell my wife. And there's things that I don't know, you know, and my wife doesn't work with the men. So What's nice also is that I can kind of give her some feedback about what's kind of like going on behind the scenes with the man so that when she's speaking to the woman, she doesn't do like what you said earlier, which is just validate. Oh, wow. What a jerk. (laughs) She knows what's really happening um, for me. So, yeah, it works out great. Sort of leaning into those differences and and being able to to come at those conversations a different way. This seems to be a, a little bit of a hot topic. I told you I wasn't going to do this to you, but uh, <laughs> people have become so sort of opposed to gender roles and every single couple that I look at that is the most objectively happy falls into roughly some sort of stereotypical <laughs> gender role. It's like 84% of women are something that aspire to be stay-at-home mothers. And yet we've done this whole thing of making sure that they need to go out and earn more money than us and be independent and whatever. And I'm just, I, 
this is not a new concept, but it's something that keeps popping back up in everything that I'm reading and talking to people. And I just, I was hoping to have your take on it too. It's just, it's, I'm struggling sure. with trying to square that circle. So who better to talk to <clears throat> than a marriage therapist about that, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, it's so interesting how I see the external forces of society kind of press their way into the personal lives of the couples that I work with. And I can tell you that it definitely has an effect, meaning um, a couple that's not grounded in, in my opinion, in a more traditional approach to gender roles is just adding on to the pile of frustrations and stresses and difficulties because they're pulling themselves in directions that they don't naturally fall into. So just like if I was trying to join a professional basketball team, <laughs> I could try, <laughs> you know, if I could put a lot of pressure on myself to try to make that three-pointer from half court, but it's probably going to just cause me a lot of wasted time and pressure and frustration. And so it's the same thing in relationships, you know, couples that when you see, let's say a woman is married to her job, you know, and then she can, then she, then she's saddened that she doesn't have time with her husband, that she never sees her kids, that there's stress around that, you know. Of course, people have to work if they need to financially support themselves. I'm not in any way taking that away from people, but I oftentimes work with people that don't need the money, which I find is very interesting, you know. And um, and and that's not to say that people can't have stuff out of the home or you know somebody has to be a homemaker all the time but a general understanding that the man is the provider the woman is the caretaker you know that the children need their parents that women tend to be more emotional when they in relationships men tend to be more stoic and they should be more stoic that women can share their feelings in ways that men men can't i have to sh i have to work with men on that too i guess sometimes i have men that just blah 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 you know, we're almost bankrupt, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you know, it's like, no, you can't. <laughs> you have to be wise in what you share. So all these traditional um, silos that have been around for centuries, they really help kind of funnel a couple into a functional relationship. It goes back to sort of the quote unquote rules we were talking about earlier, right? At least it gives you a set of guidelines to start from and not be so out to the whims on a lot of different things. I wrote a newsletter two weeks ago that just sort of talked about the consequence of optimizing for outliers and the idea that we've told people that all paths are sort of equal now. When I was growing up, it was go to school, get a job, get married, buy a house, have kids. Like that was the path and it's now become fun for and a status symbol for people to do everything that's not that. And the problem with that is that path, while not perfect for everybody, has been the most tried and true way for people to go from the start of their life to sort of the end of a, what we'll call happy existence, right? And we've told people that now this path is not right for you and that we've sort of blown this open and everybody seems sort of lost now. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I, my, my YouTube feed is just, there's not many YouTube channels about marriage. I'm going to 
I'm trying to get mine up off the ground, but I should say, I shouldn't say, there's not that many popular YouTube channels about marriage. Most of the YouTube channels is about dating, uh, you know, all the different dating podcasts, whether it's conservative or, you know, Red Pill or, uh, you know, pearly things or, you know, all the different, uh, it just goes on and on and on. And the level of um, lostness, what's the proper word? Listlessness? Of, uh, just no lost. Yeah. Just lo the, the amount of people who are lost and just completely out to lunch on some of the more basic foundations of making a relationship work is astounding to me. You know, I mean, even me growing up as a secular person, I always, I always like to share this with my kids. It's like when you were in the, when I, I grew up in the eighties and, you know, I was in college in 1985 and I'm sure that the uh, elders of that time thought that we were a whacked out generation. I have no doubt about it, but I'm telling you, it is nothing, <laughs> you know, as bad as somebody could be in 1985, and again, I'm not saying like, you know, Ted Bundy or something like that, but as, as bad as your average college kid could be in 1985, they still had a foot in traditional life, you know, and today it feels like, whoa, there's no, there's no correlation at all. So I can imagine that being very, very challenging for people and um, the course correction required to get back onto that you know, tried and true plane is pretty steep. This like society infiltrating relationships concept is interesting to me. I'd never really like thought about that before. It plays out, of course, over everything that's observable now in that everybody seems to have this sort of grass is greener approach, but I'd never sort of thought about it as a, almost an infiltration. That's a, a fascinating word to tie to that whole concept. You see it in everything. You see it, whether it's in, you know, uh, even, even what we were talking about earlier in communication, you know, people want to share their truth, you know, like this idea of being, you know, I can say, or, or, or other areas like, um, we see this a lot in the concept of setting boundaries. I mean, it is just so difficult, especially for men to set boundaries within a relationship, right? A woman's going to grow up and she's going to be told that she can do whatever she wants and she can have it all. And that, that anybody who tries to tell her otherwise is being controlling or manipulative, right? There's a lot of psychology words that have come into relationships. Oh, you know, I wanted to do X, Y, and Z. And he says, no, or he's not paying enough attention to me. So he's a narcissist or a guy will say about a woman that she's, you know, a control freak or, you know, she is, you know, you know, she's a Karen, you know, all these different things that have come in. We have so much information and so much knowledge that's with us all the time. So we just suck it all into our, our relationships. And one of the things that I do right away when I work with clients is I say, well, we're getting rid of all labeling. If I hear, if I'm speaking on the phone with the wife and she calls her husband a narcissist or something like that, or if I say that, if he's, you know, he says something about her, let's just say he says she's frigid or she's a prude or she's not comfortable with her own sexuality. I mean, I shut that stuff down immediately. You know, I just completely, no, we're not going there. I don't do diagnosis. Neither do you. If I don't do it, you don't do it. You know, and all the other stuff, you know, sometimes I have to explain to, let's just say even to a woman that if your husband's asking you to do X, Y, and Z, he's not being a manipulative control freak. He's actually expressing what he thinks is best for the relationship. 
And that may mean that you have to change. And it's like, <laughs> they may have never heard anybody say that to them before, you know? And so um, it's just, yeah, we just, there's so much information that we take in that we just immediately, you know, even I can keep going on about this, but even attitudes about divorce, you know, now you open up TikTok or you open up Twitter or you open up Instagram and you're seeing these divorce celebration channels where it's just like, oh, if you want to get divorced just because your husband, just because you love your husband doesn't mean you can't get a divorce if that's what you want to do, you know? And it's like, are you kidding me? Like, where, where is everybody? You know? Anyway. Yeah. It's funny you bring that up. We just ended up going down to City Hall and getting married in the uh, officiant that uh, we talked to and did our ceremony. We had to go in and do a little bit of a pre-meeting to make sure that we weren't crazy and whatever. But she just said, yeah, it's way too easy to get married and way too hard to get divorced. And I'm just thinking the whole time in my head is like, well, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure you see some characters down here at City Hall, but I don't know how I feel about that one. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the divorce laws were written in the 50s and 60s. And, you know, what's going on with men and women today choosing not to get married in large part, in, in some part, because of the divorce laws and how onerous they are. Um, people oftentimes ask me, you know, do you believe in marriage? Do you think people should get married? What I like to say is that I don't tell anybody that they should get married. I'm not going to have one of these channels or these, I don't have my Twitter. My Twitter feed is not about why people should get married. It's, it's about how to make your marriage great. And I always say, I believe in marriage for people who believe in marriage, you know, and that's how it works out best, you know, because if, if, if you're not a believer in marriage, if that's not something that you really want to do, then there's a decent chance it's not going to work out for you the way you probably think it might. I think a lot of people now too are looking for, I heard this concept just this afternoon, so I'm going to pull it up here, but they're looking for the idea of like a, a crate and barrel marriage versus like an Ikea marriage. And the, the concept there being just get married and build as you go. And that's the Ikea analogy versus like, it's just they're perfect altogether. You see the seven girls that you follow on Instagram who all have the, the party before they get married. And then every single birthday is perfect and whatever else there's endless number of people that you can find on Instagram that have perfectly curated feeds that only show you that this exact marriage is perfect. And then behind the scenes, it's falling apart. What's your take on sort of the Ikea versus crate and barrel idea there? Um, I kind of think they're both. Um, if I understood it right, my comment is that um, I think they're they're both a little bit dangerous, both of them, and 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 that's because oftentimes what people think or people believe is that we. That, that marriage is an extension of dating. So what happens is like it's a more official version of dating. So you date somebody, you really like them, you fall in love, you live together, you move in, you see you get along, you have 
you have shared vision and shared values and then you put a ring on it and you just continue that and for me that's a, a setup for a lot of pain moving forward and i believe the ikea versus the crate and barrel is just two versions of that you know do we just kind of figure it out as we go riding off the coattails of this great dating relationship that we have versus do we structure our marriage around these externalities that um, are going to kind of keep things looking good, you know? And I, I don't really think that either of those is really what it's all about. Marriage is all about your personal journeys together. I always say that marriage is the most personal journey you'll ever take with your partner right by your side. And the reason why I say that is because in order to have a good marriage, it's all about your own personal growth. You know, and this has nothing to do with birthday parties or Ikeas, or this has nothing to do with building things the way you the way you go forward. This has to do with a person's willingness to completely turn themselves over for the sake of something greater than who they are and what they were as a couple before. And it kind of goes in cycles. You know, there's a developmental cycle for marriage. And we have to be, you know, usually the, a lot of the couples that I see are in their early 40s because that's right when usually the, the things start falling apart, you know. And then they have to kind of rebuild their marriage from there. And uh, we need to have, in order to have that level of commitment, first of all, we have to be focused on commitment. That's the first thing. And the second thing is um, we have to have a shared mission, right? So it's not about, it, it's not so much about what we, you know, how we express what married life looks like. It's more about what we believe marriage is about and our relationship is about. And, you know, the role of God, that's very important. I just tweeted today that, you know, it's important to have a belief in God to kind of hold you accountable in your relationship, you know, because if you don't, you can <laughs> go off the rails pretty quickly. I don't know if I answered your question. It was uh, great. Like, I, I think the that sort of hits home for me, and especially the, I don't know if I'd call it mission, or uh, I tend to use the word vision a little bit more in terms of, like, you need to know where you want to go. It's one thing to be together, but if you don't have this thing that you're growing towards or working towards alone together, as you put it, then it's really hard to maintain that stability of togetherness because there's nothing that holds you together and you that's when the divorce parties come in and everything else, right? And another concept that I think is so important today, I know it's so controversial today. It's not on everybody's lips, but when I hear people talk about it, they seem to have very strong opinions, which is that I, I believe it's very critical for us to look at our partner as our soulmate. And like I said, I, I know that that's a little bit of a touchy subject. But, but why is that so important? For me, it's, and for my clients is because I know that I'm destined to work through this situation with this person. You know, that's my approach. I'm here with you. You're here with me. It's going to be great a lot of the times. And there's going to be times that it really sucks. <laughs> and the, 
But just because it sucks sometimes doesn't mean that we're not right for each other. It just means that it's difficult. That's all that it means. <laughs> and there's nothing good that comes without some difficulty. And when I believe and when I relate to my partner as my soulmate, there's nowhere to go. I, it's not like I'm going to find <laughs> you know, more happiness with somebody else. This is the one for me. And this is the person that I'm going to be spending, God willing, the rest of my life with, you know, and that's kind of what keeps us, keeps the glue holding us together. You're not uh, picking up a new sports team because the team that you cheer for lost five games in a row, right? (laughs) No. What's the biggest lesson you learned from losing half a million dollars? You've done too much homework on me. Okay. Um, the rat race isn't worth it. It's just not worth it. And and I feel so fortunate to have learned that lesson in my early forties. You know, I have six kids and for years, you know, I, I, I couldn't be home in the morning to see them off to school. I couldn't be home at dinner time. You know, I would catch them right before they fell asleep. I couldn't take vacations with my family because I was making too much money. I know it sounds so crazy, but, you know, a trip to Disneyland wasn't so much about the $5,000. Back then it was $5,000 to go to Disneyland. It was the $15,000 I was going to lose, you know, at this business opportunity. So my wife would always be like, well, we can afford it. I said, I know, but uh, (laughs) there's too much money on the table. And that really affected me, you know, tremendously. And then, and then I lost pretty much everything that I had, you know, built up. I mean, thank God I bought a home and, you know, we had a, a budget where we, you know, still was spending quite a bit of money because I have six kids and private schools and stuff. But any savings and long-term investments I had had at the age of 40, I basically lost. And I was just like, wow, you know this is what could happen in the snap of a finger. I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. You know, I just, this isn't something I want to do. So I read Tim Ferriss's book. I don't know if you're familiar with it, the four hour work week. And, uh, after I licked my wounds for about six months to a year, uh, I read his book and I changed my life. I changed my life. I started different companies. I started, you know, doing things that didn't require me to be at the office I was kind of doing that uh, that COVID type work from home thing, but back in you know the early two thousands before it became popular, people used to think that I never worked, <laughs> that I didn't have a job, uh, but I started focusing on things that had meaning and purpose and relationships again, finally. And so, uh, would I do it all over again? I'm not sure, <laughs> uh, but I'm gl- but I'm, I I can look back now and say I needed that. Yeah, there's two concepts in there. Uh, Chris Williamson, the Modern Wisdom podcast, likes to talk about the idea that the Rocky montage in the movie is 30 seconds, but in real life it can be like a decade. So no one <laughs> tells you that the suck that you're going through is gonna last much longer than you think it does, <laughs> and then. The idea that uh, the four-hour work week must have launched so many people's second half of their life, right? After reading that book, which is just 
a crazy testament to Tim and all that he's done because he hasn't stopped doing great stuff after that. But the fact that that was the catalyst, I mean, for me, it was definitely a catalyst. I pseudo quit the job I was working at and went to travel Thailand for nine months and uh, basically changed most of my perspective on life at that point after about a year when I was 24, I guess. But yeah, so. Incredible. Good. Good for you. Yeah. It's, it's nice to, it's nice to, you know, it always hits at the right time. When I was 24, I wouldn't have been, I would have just been like, no, no, thank you. You know, but I needed to lose a half a million dollars before. <laughs> it cost me before 23 the... bucks for the book and it costs you uh, a little bit more than that. Yeah. <laughs> so the last question here that I want to leave you with is something that I'm now trying to leave all my guests with is I want to ask you what the last thing is that you changed your mind about. Could be you've got a new ice cream flavor or you've got a new take on the housing market or anything in between. My son and I, my 21-year-old son and I, he calls himself, a, I believe it's called an agro, um, agora, agorist, agorist. Have you ever heard that? That's like somebody, you, do you know what I'm talking about? No, okay. So he's somebody who like has ch chosen to kind of not believe in government at all. And so we fight all the time about, <laughs> about, you know, society. I'm more traditional and, you know, big school. But um, one of the things that I've kind of changed my mind about is, is this idea that it's okay for us to have less control in our lives, but at the same time have focus on the framework. And he's really pushed me into that idea where I haven't gone completely not really what he believes, which is like total free market and just let the market do everything and let the chips fall where they may. Um, but loosening up a little bit on the way society runs and allowing kind of nature to take its course and lead us in a direction which is better than what we could have imagined if we just use our brains and intellect to try to force our way through this life. So, yeah, that's something that I've picked up from him, which I appreciate very much. David, I appreciate you uh, taking the time to chat with me this afternoon. And uh, it was a wonderful conversation. And I'm sure everybody got a ton out of it. And we didn't even get through a quarter of what uh, we had to talk <laughs> about. So I'm sure there's a follow-up uh, conversation in the cards at some point. But uh, I awesome. appreciate you having this conversation with me. And I uh, appreciate all the work you're doing. If we want to send people to your stuff, where can we send them? Yeah, I mean, um, the easiest way to get in touch with me is through my website, which is davidfeldman.com, D-O-V-I-D, feldman.com. Uh, there, there's blogs and there's resources, and my whole marriage program is on there. You can basically do it for free if you want with all the guides and everything that I have there. Um, you can also set up an appointment with me there. Get on my email list. For the fun part, though, you can just follow me at Twitter at the same same spelling at David Feldman. Um, I have I tweet about 10, 15 times a day. We're always talking about great conversations, interesting takes on marriage. Lots of replies, lots of polls and questions. And there's a lot of really good stuff if you want to think a little bit more about how to have a good relationship. Perfect. Thanks, David. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks you, Blake.